these transfers, which has been really, really helpful for us. And so you can do these really uncertain times. I think that's an act of faith. And I see God rewarding that in the life of the church and in the life of those who are continuing to lean into that faithfully. So let's pray for the offering. God, we want to see your kingdom come, your will be done in this church, through this church, in the lives of every heart here. So I pray that all the money that is received this week is channeled in that direction to fund your kingdom agenda, not the different agendas that war for priority in our own hearts. Guard our leadership team from making unwise, self-serving, unfaithful decisions. God, give us uh, a greater window into ways that we can advance the kingdom in this church and strengthen your body here, but also bring the gospel and the good news of Jesus to bear in and through this church to the community. We want your kingdom to advance in this time. We want people, especially in this time of vulnerability, to hear that there is a God who loves them, who longs to transition them from a kingdom of darkness to a new and living hope. Please, please, God, uh, advance those purposes for your glory. Amen. Okay, we're moving through the book of Revelation. I'm going to be reading again from Revelation 6, verses 1 to 8. We looked at this last week, but I want to look at it one more week, and I'll explain why in a moment. But we're going to read through the first four seals. We've been introduced to the scroll of destiny. A lot of questions around what does that mean. And in uh, chapter 6, we're beginning to have that mystery unveiled as Jesus takes the scroll and begins cracking open the seals. And in chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, we see what happens when the first four seals of the seven are broken. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals, and then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. And when the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, Come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one, and its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. And to him was given a large sword. And when the lamb opened the third seal, I, thought, I saw the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a day's wage and three quarts of barley for a day's wage and do not damage the oil and the wine. And when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword famine, plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. So like I acknowledged last week, this is where we move into the super trippy stuff of Revelation. And this is where the roads begin to diverge in terms of Christians saying, how are we supposed to read and interpret and understand these things? Here's a brief recap of the four views. Last week's sermon, I spent a little bit more time on these. I will reference them pretty steadily moving forward. 
but I just want to recap them here. So remember the preterist view says almost everything that we're reading about in Revelation, except for the final chapters, final judgments, Jesus' return, but chapters 6 through 19 are all prophecies that happened very shortly after this book was given. And they would say this book was given before uh, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So the preterists say we are actually reading prophecies that happened very, very early on in the first century. That doesn't mean they're irrelevant to us, but it means that we shouldn't try and say, oh, these things are things are signs that we should be looking for that lie ahead of us on the timeline. Preterists say, nope, they've already happened. Historicists say all these signs and symbols indicate major events or people that have happened between when this book was given and all the way up into the present and will sometimes stretch into the future. So they see all of Revelation as sort of like a condensed timeline of Christian history highlighting some of the most important events and people. Then you've got the futurist view, which is probably the one that most Christians are familiar with or they've picked up, which is Revelation 6 through 19 deals with prophecies of events and people that uh, haven't, haven't played out yet. They all lie ahead of us in the timeline. They're going to happen on a really condensed uh, timeline through a time called the Great Tribulation, which will happen at some point in the future. And with the breaking of the first seal, this seven-year tribulation will commence, and then all of these prophecies that we read about will play out in chronological, linear fashion, culminating with the final judgment and Jesus' return. Then the last view is the idealist, or sometimes called spiritualist view, and it says what we're reading in Revelation are the universal patterns that every church needs to understand are going to show up whenever the kingdom of God pushes against the kingdom of darkness. So um, the idealist says it's not the point of Revelation and Revelation 6 to 19, these pictures, the beast coming up over here, these seals being broken, horsemen of the apocalypse, they don't apply to one particular time frame, the past or the future. They say that are, those arguments aren't really that helpful. The idealist says these are supposed to be understood as things that happen in every generation if the church is being faithful to its calling. Because when the kingdom of God advances, it's advancing against the kingdom of darkness. And then there's pushback. And in that friction, we hear of wars and rumors of wars and famines and antichrists, false Christs uh, come up and these patterns kind of keep happening throughout history. So those are the four views. Now, I want to again reemphasize, even though these views are quite different in terms of how to understand the prophecies and where they fit and how they fit together, all of the views ultimately cohere and agree on the same thing. So you can have strong Christians in each camp, but they all agree that God is sovereign, that's a clear teaching of Revelation, that Christ is the king, that there are real spiritual forces that are active against the church, that all things are going to culminate in Jesus. History isn't cyclical. Cyclical. It has an end point, and it's going to culminate in Jesus. Justice is going to be served with a final day of judgment, and Jesus is going to fully restore heaven and earth. Instead of having separate and slightly overlapping dimensions, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, free from sin, full of the glory and goodness of God, which will be renewed, and those who have 
receives Christ and those who have participated with God's redemption will move into that future together. So there's still uh, a lot of unity amongst these views, even though the details of how they read Revelation might be a little different. Now, today what I want to do and why I want to stay in this section is because many Christians read Revelation. They come to Revelation and they almost treat it as a standalone book. So like there's the Old Testament, there's the New Testament, and then there's kind of this weird tale at the end, Revelation, this weird caboose on the train. And when you combine that with the fact that many Christians today, and I'd put myself in this camp because I wasn't raised in the church, and then when I became a Christian, um, I was never really that encouraged to really dig into the Old Testament because it's old, right? You want the new one. So you go into the new one because that's the relevant one. And so I didn't start kind of really understanding the backstory of God's big story until much later uh, after becoming a Christian. And I think many Christians have been exposed to that same type of zeitgeist. And so what happens is we can move into Revelation and kind of start from a more or less blank slate and be looking at these symbols and these events and being like, hmm, I wonder what, what this means. And it can be easy for us to be like, well, what does this symbol mean to me or what might it, you know, maybe where, I, where have I seen it before? And we import our understanding onto the text. That's called eisegesis, where we come to the text and we fill in the blank ourselves because we don't have an understanding of the context. But Revelation is a symbolic book. And it is heavily tethered to the Old Testament. In fact, almost every commentator will say there's between three and 400 allusions, direct or indirect, to the Old Testament in the entire book. Hundred, not three, not 30, three to 400. And that prompted Eugene Peterson to say, um, there's actually nothing new in the book of Revelation. We're not being introduced to anything new in Revelation. Faith, you can just unplug it if you want. Faith, just unplug it. it I don't think the, the little knob there works. Just kill it. Great. Um, Eugene Peterson says, we're actually not discovering anything new in Revelation that wasn't already there in Scripture. It's just organized and presented differently to us. And why is that important to understand? Because what it should humble us with is the recognition that it will be very difficult, almost maybe impossible, to properly interpret all of Revelation if we don't have a pretty high degree of familiarity with the Old Testament symbols. If you try and decode Revelation without at least one foot firmly planted in the Old Testament where you're growing and learning and beginning to see patterns of these symbols showing up, it's going to be really easy to misread, misinterpret, and misapply it. And, and um, for that reason, I want to spend one more week looking at these four horsemen of the apocalypse because they're a good case study of why you need to be familiar with the Old Testament. Because if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, which, and let's just be honest, probably the vast majority of us aren't to the extent that the first readers of this book were, you could very easily assume this is the first time the four horsemen of the apocalypse show up in the Bible. But it's not. 
but almost no Christian I know does that. The first time we're introduced to the four horsemen is in the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah is a post-exilic book, which means it happens after the exile. It's written after God's people have been able to return. So it's post-exile from a captivity, captivity in Babylon. Uh, half the book is kind of written before the second temple is rebuilt under Ezra and Nehemiah. And the second half of the book is more or less second half, is written after the temple is completed. And the purpose of this book is for Zechariah to encourage those who have returned to Jerusalem out of exile and to say, let's stay faithful to God, especially early on when there is no temple in Jerusalem, which is the center of their worship. How do we worship and celebrate and live for God when his temple's been destroyed? Zechariah is a word of encouragement to God's people. And in chapter 1, we read about these horse and riders sent by the Lord to patrol the earth. And then in Zechariah, this picture is, gets expanded. So in Zechariah 6, verses 1 to 7, check this out. And again, I looked up and saw four chariots coming out between two mountains, mountains of bronze. And the first chariot had red horses, the second chariot black horses, the third chariot white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled gray horses, or pale, depending on the translation. And then I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel said to me, these are the four winds of heaven going out after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. And the chariot with the black horse, horses goes towards the north country. The white goes towards the west. The dappled ones go towards the south country. And when the steeds came out, they were impatient to get off and patrol the earth. And the angel said, go patrol the earth. And so they patrolled the earth. Now, the key to understanding this image is found in the fifth verse, where the angel says to Zechariah, these are the four winds of heaven going out after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. Four horses, four groups of horses and riders going out of the four winds to the four winds of heaven. What does that mean? Again, it's pretty strange language, not precise and technical the way we would describe things. In the Old Testament, again, looking for patterns, you can just do a Bible gateway search. The four winds often refers to sweeping judgment or sweeping evaluation of some kind. Notice just a few passages where four winds are used. Jeremiah 49, 36. I will bring upon the nation of Elam the four winds from the four corners of heaven, and I will scatter them to all these winds, and there shall be no nation to which the exiles of Elam shall not come. And then Daniel 11, 4. And while still rising in power, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. But not to his posterity, nor according to the dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted and go to others besides these. So one important thing that we want to be aware of as we're reading through and trying to understand this image of the four horsemen in Revelation is that Four horsemen in scripture is connected to four winds, and it's an image used of a coming, sweeping judgment of God. And the four corners represents completeness, comprehensiveness. It's not just going to be a, a judgment that touches on a particular dimension of said person or said nation's life. It's going to affect them holistically and totally. Now, 
this knowledge is pretty important if we want to try and understand this passage, or at least prevent ourselves from really going off into wild speculation about what it might be. When you learn that the four horsemen of the Old Testament, um, when you see this kind of connection, then one of the things that you might begin to be more comfortable with is recognizing that the point of the passage isn't really to try and understand, like, oh, who's the writer? Is that like a per like, who's the horse? Or, like, what, what's going on? And some of the views try and do that. The intention of the text, drawing from Zechariah, though, isn't really to get to that level of detail. Some of you say, well, is the white rider on the first horse Jesus? Is it the Antichrist? The point is that we're supposed to, this is supposed to act as a trigger to our memory to be like, oh, these first four seals are serious sweeping judgment. We don't know who it's against yet, but it's like serious. There's an echo here. Now again, I, you know, you don't need to feel guilty for not knowing it because this is a pretty obscure reference, right? You probably haven't heard a message or a teaching series through the book of Zechariah. But it shows us why familiarity with the Old Testament is helpful so that when you pick up something in the New Testament, you can realize, listen, I think I read somewhere, I'm going to do a search for that same thing back here and see what the connection is there. The nature of what we see happening in Revelation 6 is sweeping judgment. Then the question is, does it have any specific characteristics? In Ezekiel 14, 21, another Old Testament prophet, listen to this. For thus says the Lord, how much more will I send upon Jerusalem my four deadly acts of judgment? Sword, famine, wild animals, pestilence. Same four riders. Number four, Acts of judgment, four winds. These are, this, we're all playing in the same sandbox now. Again, we're not, in Revelation, we're not discovering anything new. It's just repackaged differently. Ezekiel says, or the, uh, the word of the Lord through Ezekiel says, how much more will I send upon who? Ezekiel 14 tells us who the judgment's against. At least in the context of the prophet Ezekiel. Who's it against? Jerusalem. God's people. Now, hold that as a little placeholder. There's a reason that these specific four kind of tools of judgment or tools of death are used against Jerusalem. In Leviticus 26, in the very early days where God is forming the nation at Mount Sinai and beginning to set up his law and saying, I'm going to teach you how to be a nation, there are... Um, promises, there are offers of blessing and cursing, and one of the things that God says in Leviticus 26.18 is this. If, in spite of all of this, in spite of my deliverance, my choosing you, my um, enthroning you as the only nation on earth to have the true and living God as uh, their representative, I will continue to punish you sevenfold for your sins. And then God says, this is the way I'm going to do it. Verse 22, I'm going to let loose wild beasts against you. Verse 25, I'm going to bring a sword upon you, and I'm going to send pestilence among you. Verse 26, I'm going to, I'm going to break your supply of bread. So ten women shall bake in your bread in a single oven and shall dole out 
your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. It's going to be economic devastation. You're going to have to work very, very hard all day to basically eke out one meal. Again, this is in the context of God speaking to his people. Now, maybe if you're really sharp and the coffee's kicked in this morning, you begin to realize, oh, you can kind of see the foundation for the preterists' view that would say what we're reading about in Revelation are God's judgments, which he established in the Old Testament, which are coming to pass and which will culminate in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Because that would align perfectly with what he's established in the Old Testament. The evidence gets even stronger for the preterist position when you read a little bit farther in Leviticus 26. Verses 27 and 28 say, so after God says, these are the ways I'm going to punish you. Wild beast, sword, pestilence, break your supply line of bread. If in spite of this you do not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. And you shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And you really can't get much more violent, offensive imagery than that. The siege of Jerusalem happens, I believe it was in spring. And it lasts four months. It happens just before um, one of the Jewish feasts. I can't remember if it was Passover or not. One of the Jewish feasts, and what happens is all, much of the Jewish nation travels, does a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Once they're inside, Rome seals off all the exits. And they put, because uh, Jerusalem at that point had, had been taken uh, by the Jews in the previous uh, few years of warfare. Rome was trying to take it back. They let the Jews go in. They siege. It lasts four months. Ancient siege, that's pretty short for an ancient siege. Siege, sieges could last a year, two, three years, depending on how much food store you have. But when Jerusalem is swollen by 10, 11, 12 times the population because of a religious festival, and then they're sealed off, you're going to literally eat through your supplies really, really quick. So things escalate pretty massively in those four months. And during that four-month siege, when Roman forces were attempting to starve out the Jews in Jerusalem, one historian recounts the story of a Jewish woman named Mary of, of Bethesuba. So it's not no connection to any of the biblical Marys. It's a, a random Jewish woman. And Josephus, the Roman historian, says that she was the daughter of Eleazar, originally from the village of Bethesuba in the district of Perea. She had fled and, and, and come to Jerusalem. She arrived being distinguished both in family status and fortune, but her property, treasures, and food were quickly plundered by many of the Jewish defenders, soldiers in the, in the city during the siege. And, and the famine, writes Josephus, was eating her heart out, and rage was still consuming her faster. And eventually she grows mad with hunger. 
and she took an infant that had recently been born, that Josepha says, she took the infant that was at her breast and said, poor little mite, in war, famine, and civil strife, why should I keep you alive? With the Romans, there's only slavery, and only if alive, when they come, famine is just forestalling slavery, and um, the enemies are crueler ever still. Come, you must be food for me, to my enemies with an avenging spirit, and to a world, a tale, the only thing left to fill up the misery, sorry, the measure of my Jewish misery. And then Josephus writes, in all defiance to natural feeling, she killed her son, roasted him, ate one half, and hid the rest. Could you see, even though it seems very strange for us as Christians to imagine the book of Revelation as not being about future events, that Craterus localizes all these events in the past and says they already happened. Now, the Preterist won't say, because they happened, they're not going to repeat themselves. But the Preterist will say, we need to understand what happened in 70 AD. And that wasn't just the destruction of the Jewish people. You can't just look at it from a simple uh, humanistic point of view. That when that second temple is destroyed, that's actually the judgment of God upon his people who saw the Messiah face to face, saw people healed, heard his message, and didn't even react with indifference, but fiercely, led by the religious leaders, opposed it. Said, no. We don't want in a very real sense, the kingdom of God to come and rule and reign in our hearts. We have our own kingdom set up. We like how we have done it, thank you very much. And God delivers on his promise of judgment, not against the world, but against Jerusalem. Now, in this text, in Revelation, we're not told who the judgment is against. The preterist is going to say, Jerusalem and the Jewish nation in 70 AD. Again, historicists, they're, because they're completely untethered from the Old Testament, they don't even try and engage with the Old Testament here. They're just like, oh, the white rider is like this Roman guy who uh, ruled from 176 to 198, and there's just an arbitrary kind of sticking of these four horsemen on really strange and incoherent. So, again, just trying to be honest with you, I think the historicist perspective is incredibly weak, made more so by the fact that, again, there's not even an attempt to connect it to what's happened in the Old Testament. The futurists will say, yeah, the destruction of the temple in the first century was a serious judgment of God against the Jewish nation. But it was a microcosm. It was an example of what one day will happen at the scale, at a, at a global scale, for those who reject and ignore God. And the idealist says, this is a pattern that recurs again and again and again. Death, war, famine, pestilence against any nation that rejects and ignores God. Now, let's not miss the forest for the trees. Some of this stuff is kind of interesting and you can go, go down different rabbit holes. But what I want us to recognize is that all of these different interpretations, even the historicists, 
still converges at an endpoint. And that endpoint is Revelation 6 is at least communicating that there are severe judgments of God that are coming against those who stand against God. And one day, there aren't just going to be like, you know how we all like face our own like little judgment days, our own like little mini apocalypses in our life, and our marriages, and our family, and our communities, and our nation, like little capital J judgment days where we face maybe wars or pestilence or COVID-19 pandemic. The Bible says one day there's going to be a capital J judgment day. And it's a day where each person is going to stand before God and have to justify themselves before God, justify their existence, justify how they've lived. Jesus even said, you're going to have to justify every careless word spoken. There's going to be lots of fine print. And you will either stand before God on that day and attempt to justify yourself through your good intentions, your morality, your religious activity, your good works, and you'll fail because all of those things, no matter how well intended, no matter how pure from our perspective, are always tainted and corrupted by self-serving motives to a greater or lesser extent. Or you can stand before Jesus and because you've repented from your self-centeredness and placed him on the throne and asked for his mercy and his forgiveness, he will justify you before the Father as an act of grace. You won't have to bear the burden of having to stand before God and trying to self-justify yourself, which will be a failing task. When the gospel is being proclaimed in the book of Acts, we read this. Paul says, while God has overlooked times of human ignorance in the past, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Oh, who's that man? Ah, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's Jesus. God is going to give the authority to judge to Jesus on judgment day. And part of the message that lies at the core of the Christian proclamation is that judgment day is coming. And today is the day to repent, to, re- to turn. Repent just means change direction. Instead of a direction where you're rejecting and ignoring God, you turn towards God, turn to Christ, embrace him as Savior, so you don't have to face him as judge. Right? You want your first encounter with Jesus to be a Savior, not your first encounter with him to be judge. Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so pastorally, my, like the deep compulsion of my heart, my conviction, is to ask you to place your life into Jesus' hands. And then you can live inside the liberating truth that Romans 8.1 says, that now, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, your word warns us, and even as I share this message, I realize how how tricky this is to get right. 
because there's so much in our culture that retracts from any idea that God would be a judgmental God or that God would ultimately bring his justice to bear against human evil, even the evil in our own hearts. So God, I am relying on you by your Holy Spirit to cut us to the heart where we need to be brought to new conviction and fresh conviction that you are a God who doesn't want anybody to perish. You love, your, your grace and mercy are astounding, but there's also a cost to this. And if we hear your voice today, God, may we not harden our hearts. May we not continue down the road of indifference or even outright rejection, but instead turn to you to find grace and mercy so that we can live the rest of our life here with new and living hope and be freed from the burden of having to justify ourselves before you one day. You are the judge and the justifier. You are awesome, and we thank you for your grace in our lives.